So um, as I've mentioned, you know, I keep repeating myself, but $7 billion last year in 2022, um, really a, a very impressive uh, growth curve almost happening in the industry. And now we're going to be joined by three experts who are going to help us navigate the investment strategies in this uh, investment sector. So we've got Eleanor Davies from Vita Down, uh, Alex Colville uh, from Age One and Patrick Burgermeister from Kazoo. Hi, guys. Hello, Phil. Hey, Phil. hey. Yeah. great. Um, so, uh, Patrick, if I could maybe maybe start with you. Um, uh, Kazoo is probably the most established uh, fund in the panel here. Uh, you guys have been been at it been at it a while, put it that way. Uh, and of course, you you uh, you talk about category openers when you're talking about your investment strategy. So, could you maybe, Patrick, just talk us through that a bit? All right. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me and for the organization here. Um, well, Kizu started in 2016. Not sure whether we were the first, but uh, um, we are family office, meaning evergreen in structure. And uh, we'd like to invest another 300 million. That's what is publicly out there as a sum into this space. Under category openers, we somehow understand the opposite of incremental innovation, which is also quite a profitable uh, business model, as we can see from uh, the conventional uh, drug companies, biotech and pharma. However, we demand that a company shoots higher. I have to admit, I adopted a term, it's not my own, from uh, Matt Cabellan from the University of Seattle. He calls it um, controlled moonshots. So yes, high risk, but still we uh, look deep into the science and we want to see a good team driving it forward. Um, but we're always in the upper right-hand corner, you know, if you have this risk and reward uh, chart that a lot of consultants use. This is really our goal. And uh, some examples of those, Patrick? I mean, maybe just talk us through them. Uh, right. Uh, thank you for mentioning Cyclarity already earlier on. That was great. So I have to pick another one. Yeah. Um, Elastrin is maybe another good example, I think because we'd like to see one of the aging processes, using the plural here, uh, reversed. To many people, this still sounds that, oh, this must, must be much more difficult than delaying something, right? But uh, I think it also has huge advantages if you have an approach like removing calcium, that's what Elastrin Therapeutic does, in a targeted way from diseased vessels, there's an antibody involved that recognizes only damaged vessels there. Um, then the readouts that you choose later on in the clinical trial also should appear much more quicker. As a contrast, maybe if you develop another hypertension drug, there are already like 50 or 60 out there, and then you try to prove that this one is better, of course you have to enroll 3,000, 4,000 patients in a phase three. However, if you remove calcium plaques, for example, or have another endpoint, and you show reversal of something, you save a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. And as we've seen, you know, the governments are starting to sit up and take attention of all of this uh, activity that's going on in the space. So uh, maybe, Eleanor, if we move over to you, of course, uh, Vita Dow is a uh, uh, is a wonderful new way of people uh, interacting as well as investing in the space. Quite a complex model for those that don't understand 
DAOs and crypto and, and so on. So maybe could you just explain how the organization works? Sure. Thank you, Phil. And so VisaDAO, what we are, are, so we're basically a different type of legal setup and it's quite experimental in that way. Um, but basically, instead of the traditional corporate top-down hierarchy, we are a community-led uh, cooperative. We're also a not-for-profit. And basically, the goal of VisaDAO, its 10,000-member strong community, is to fund and build novel moonshot uh, aging research, uh, translational aging research uh, from the lab and spin it out via the support of the VisaDAO community. And so what that looks like is that, so the crypto element is that there's a type of community voting part to it. There's also the leveraging the wisdom of the crowds in that we uh, are able to benefit from the collective intelligence of um, the community of whom we have VCs, we have biotech operators, we have researchers, PhDs, in order to enhance the quality of our decision making and essentially also provide alternative uh, sources of funding uh, via DeFi, decentralized finance, in order to basically give more, more shots on goal to bringing these types of novel research into the market. Okay, great. Well, we're, I'm sure we'll dig into it in, in more detail because, of course, it is um, quite a complex model to get your head around until you really are embedded in it. But uh, let, let's uh, let's swing over to you, Alex. Of course, uh, you're a, a newly minted fund, you know, based on some some activity that has gone from your uh, your co-founder, Laura Deming, in the, in the past, her, her activities in the space. Just interested to know, Alex, how did you get on raising your fund? Uh, you've, you've, you've come out of the gates... Um, with capital at a time when it's hard to attract capital. So what, what was your, what's behind your secret? <laughs> yeah, great question, Phil. Um, and I think for those of the audience who aren't familiar, I could maybe give a little bit of background as, as to the longevity fund. So in essence, Laura and I co-founded Age One, which is uh, the next fund in the series from the longevity fund, which Laura herself fund, uh, formed back in 2011. Uh, so it's kind of the first fund focused on the theme of longevity. Laura really set out to prove that not only was it possible to invest in the space, but also possible to make money in the space. Um, and uh, she did that very successfully. She's not loud uh, about her accomplishments, but she was able to return the fund several times over within six and a half years from, in essence, starting investing out of that fund. Uh, she's experienced five IPOs so far. Uh, with this theme of investing into longevity. Uh, I think that's a cool fact that not a lot of people realize is that it's like actually proven out that you can make top decile returns investing into the longevity field on, you know, a very reasonable venture timeline of this kind of like six to eight year time horizon. Yeah. Um, so I think that part is pretty cool. But uh, in essence, age one, the new vehicle we launched publicly about a month and a half ago now with a $35 million initial closing. Um, and yeah, that process in essence looked like building off of uh, a lot of Laura's traditional investing base, uh, as well as kind of roping in a, a new institution and a couple other family offices. Yeah, I actually make a very good point there, of course, that from an investor perspective, uh, the exit opportunity comes at that uh, that crucial IPO stage. So you're not necessarily having to wait for post phase three trial results and readouts to be able to then go to, to market to then exit. Uh, so, you, yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting point. And I, I just swinging that over to, to, to you, uh, Patrick, I mean, uh, have you had any exits in Kazoo or are you looking at a at a status where you're in for the long run with these these very early breakthrough technologies? 
Um, no exits so far. Um, well, there was one company, Ajax, that you all know, but I uh, wouldn't mention that necessarily. Um, however, we're also not under pressure, you know, being an evergreen. Uh, there's even sometimes the thinking that early exits may be profitable, but not serving the longevity field much. You know, for example, if you take the uh, phase 1B, phase 2A exits of a large acquirer, there's no guarantee that the new owner of the project will then also be driven by the longevity potential. You always have to choose an accepted indication, obviously. And this may be the only thing that remains afterwards. Of course, we have to show success cases. We have to show that you can make money in this field. However, I personally would be disappointed if I had an exit. And then all that comes out of it would be a, a new eye drug. And the whole longevity potential that would also be there in different indications or maybe also off-label use. You mentioned Ozempic earlier. Um, would be lost. That would be half satisfying, I think. No, that's that's very interesting. And I guess that thinking about all of the panel, effectively, you guys are all getting in at kind of pre-seed to seed stage. Would that be fair? Yes. Yeah. So so I think that that gives us a sort of waiting to maybe think about a little bit of, of the, the contribution that Vita Dow would be making, because really, as I understand it, um, your uh, Eleanor, your your portfolio companies, which aren't kind of portfolio, they they kind of come to you for for capital raising. This is everything from quite early stage university spinouts, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we focus predominantly on very early stage projects. We also do uh, symbolic um, equity tickets as well. So we have also funded the likes of Seclarity, uh, Turn Bio, Ocean, most recently. But yeah, as you said. Um, predominantly uh, focused on uh, academic projects. And, and what is the sort of average deal size that you you invest in? I mean, let me, let me ask you that question, uh, adjecting with another. So if somebody was raising, say, half a million, would that be all they need at that point? Or would that be half a million contribution that Vita Dow would make to perhaps a, you know, three million round, for example? Yeah, so if it's an academic project and so Visa Dow is coming in at 500 million, uh, we may also find a contributor, like a, a syndicate type of uh, investor to come in at that point. And then there would also be basically a collaborative type of approach. Um, commonly, though, we pretty much lead the rounds with academic projects. Uh, ticket sizes are traditionally 250K, but can also be larger. And they're basically set out in terms of milestones where the community works with the uh, PIs, researchers, in order to develop um, to the next uh, specific stage uh, for IP generation, uh, generating data. And then basically, if it's sounding like a promising project, then there's also a potential to do a top up to double down and also to bring in um, more institutional capital too. And so and just just to explore that institutional capital, and then we'll move on. So is there complexity with a company once it's gone through the cycle of the, the VitaDAO uh, funding and the the concept of uh, IP NFTs is that complex going on to the next stage where you maybe got a a group of uh, traditional investors looking as as VCs at taking on one of those companies onto the next stage? 
Yeah, so I'm glad you asked that actually, because it's something that we've been given uh, that we've been given quite a lot of thought to. So basically, the token holders uh, and so holders of the IPNFT, um, so they are obligated via a Jagalong clause to sell back their tokens at a set price from the respective acquirer um, or strategic. And so this also goes through a type of consensus matching as well, and um, then it basically comes from on-chain to off-chain and then is basically a segue back into the market. Okay, so it, you've you've got a, a methodology to play your part at the early stages, and, exactly. and then hand off as you go forward. And and um, Alex, you, you know your your business model is not just capital, right? You know you're looking. I wouldn't say is it in, is it incubating or mentoring. What, what's your approach to really making sure that your investments are are carried through to success? Yeah, I think it's like it's some mix of all of those in a weird way. Uh, but we really focus on just like finding what we think are just like the world's highest potential talent, um, whether they be from the aging space or not from the aging space, uh, work with them over a period. Sometimes it takes like one to three years before they get to that point where they're ready to incorporate uh, start, in essence, uh, a project in the aging space that has the potential um to be a venture scale company uh, and, and kind of however we encounter talent, we work with that talent. Uh, so we have a venture fellow program. Uh, we have an EIR program. It's all asynchronous depending on why people come. And then we also just invest in, in founders who are building kind of a founder led biotech in the longevity space. Um, so kind of all of the above uh, in, in terms of the model, some weird mix of incubation. Um, we've also are just starting our first venture creation right now, um, which is, like, I think it's going to be a one-off for us, um, but it's something that uh, gets me super, super excited. So we're just doing it anyways. Uh, yeah. So a little bit of a lot of different things, but very focused on just like world's top talent and, and bringing them into the aging field. Yeah. Great. And and just asking a question to everybody on the panel, um, how do you feel about, you know, leaning into the uh, the beginning of next year, 2024, Obviously, you know, we want it. We want things to pick up, and of course, effectively, there's a point where you guys need to hand off, right? You need new capital to come in. You need scaling money to take those companies through to the next stages. Do I mean? I'm not asking you to call it because it's very hard to. But how do you feel about next year? Are you feeling any positive vibes? Who goes first? I think you have, Patrick. Ah, all right. <laughs> well, um, I presume I'm the oldest in the group here. And I've experienced quite some cycles. Um, I was was a biotech analyst uh, at a Swiss bank a while back. It always comes unexpectedly the turn. And for both a hype cycle, but also a trough in the market, people always assume it will continue like that. The nice weather will continue. But now you also find people in the market who say, Ah, oh, 2024 will also be very tough and don't expect any uh, sudden surprises. I think... 24 will start nicely. We'll, we'll look at JP Morgan, of course, big biotech conference. Um, but I already heard some um, positive news um, from the US first and some fund managers. And I mean, maybe one fact that is quite strong and uh, yeah, based in reality, the closed end funds, and this is, this is the majority of all investors, right? They have to come back. They have an obligation to invest their money or place their bets within five years, and they can't wait another 18 months. And that's how long this uh, 
ice age, as some people have called it, already lasts. So, Eleanor, uh, what do you think? Um, so it's interesting because VisaDAO is basically a combination of so crypto builders and also longevity biotech. And so you're kind of dealing with two different animals here. So as far as the longevity biotech side is concerned, I'm very excited about how much the communities have scaled in this time and also just the quality of um, outreach and um, opportunities that are also coming up to as far as the uh, crypto side is concerned, um, I'm also getting the impression that um, it's being taken a lot more seriously. The actual value of so token voting and also um, non-traditional uh, access to capital is becoming more kind of accepted. And um, yeah, basically on top of that, VisaDAO is becoming more known as a, a an organization that's bringing down the barriers for investors, also for like patients to understand um, the dual flow process and also like what actually is longevity biotech too. So um, overall, very, very optimistic. Okay, that's good to hear. And Alex, of course, you're, you're based um, on the uh, Pacific west coast right so you're in the area where it's all happening what what are you hearing on the streets out there yeah i mean i'm pretty dang optimistic um i think as you alluded to earlier you know there's so much hype in the aging field probably like 90 percent of the field is hype uh and so i think it's going to be one of those periods where we see a pretty big culling uh but i think quality things will get funded and particularly moving into next year we've seen probably three or four big biotech funds in the u.s uh, raise huge new uh, new funds, in essence, over the past month. Um, I think what's contributing to this is funds are finally starting to mark down investments, which is allowing the denominator problem of institutional investors to be solved, which is allowing them to put money back into the venture ecosystem. Uh, and yeah, everything that we've seen from our portfolio over the past two months, things have really flipped a switch from how they were this summer and, and before. So I'm pretty optimistic. That's good to hear. And of course, you know, we're leaning into Thanksgiving next week. I mean, do you still think that we'll see uh, action happening at the balance of the year or is everybody just starting to think about next year now? I think I think we'll see a lot of action yeah. <laughs> based on what I'm seeing, but I'm curious Great. what the others think. That's good to hear. Well, I mean, let maybe let's just move on to some of the other areas of science that um, people are investing in at the moment. We hear a lot about, of course, cellular reprogramming. You know, there are companies in that space that are capitalized, you know, under under ten million dollars, and there are others that are, as we know, over three billion dollars. But that's just one one area of the space. Well, any any guidance for our audience as to what are interesting spaces that have got potential for for the longevity space? Anybody? All right, I'll say pet longevity. How about that? Well, let's get the conversation started. <laughs> <laughs> could be a door opener. Uh, what we at Kizu um, think could be one of the biggest fields upcoming, still fledgling, is actually tissue engineering. Um, because mankind has moved from small molecules, 20th century, then antibodies, since about 10 years, uh, CAR-Ts, etc. We've seen cellular therapies. The logical next step, also in terms of size, literally, would be tissue engineering. And this would maybe make a much larger impact on health span than any of the previous ones, because small molecules are bound to target one single molecule or maybe a couple of off-targets, etc. But with tissue engineering, you can reverse a lot more than you can do by... Um, 
targeting a single metabolic node. So, so just an example, are you thinking like heart muscles or something of that nature? I mean, how, just so we understand, could you explain it a little bit more deeply for us? Right. I mean, there's also already Semma Therapeutics, for example, quite a large company that uh, is producing islet cells with children that are without insulin injections for two years now, some of them. Um, yes, uh, cardiomyocytes could be a, an interesting field. Um, liver cells, hepatocytes could also maybe be one of the first that could be used, implanted, not only uh, used as a screening tool for pharma companies. That's what most uh, hepatocyte and uh, tissue engineering companies do currently. They cater to pharma for their um, yeah, drug discovery engines. And um, uh, obviously, Alex, you're, you're looking at some very interesting stuff. And you're part of a, part of a new organization that uh, released a paper yesterday. I can't remember the name of it. So perhaps you could help me with that. But that was um, identifying some of the barriers uh, to, to entry in, in the space. So what are you looking at in terms of investment categories that you think are going to have, uh, obviously, in the end returns, but also very breakthrough science? Yeah, so you're alluding to, in essence, the Amaranth Foundation. Um, so this was a family office where an ultra high net worth, in essence, brought me into a foundation uh, that he was establishing to deploy money into the field of aging. And we really started from the approach of let's roadmap the entire space using a, a panel of kind of lead leading industry experts in the aging field. Uh, let's compile our list of quite biased uh, bottlenecks to progress in the field, really from a like, you know, not a certain time scale, kind of a very long time horizon, like what is holding the aging field back? Uh, and so I was very lucky over the past two years of, of working with the Amaranth Foundation to deploy over $100 million into the aging field and investments in philanthropy to, to move the field forward. Um, and in terms of some of the categories from that that get us really excited, uh, you know, both from the fund perspective, but also from Amaranth Foundation, one of which, as you kind of alluded to, pet longevity, you tempted me with that phrase there. Uh, I, I think this kind of fits in the category of like needing kind of more ambition on a regulatory side. The fact that we have not had an aging drug approved in humans, uh, in my opinion, is a big shame. And it really reflects not a lack of science, but a lack of ambition and pragmatism uh, in the space. And that's something that I'm super, super excited that over the next decade, I'm confident we will see a change in. Um, we're seeing it right now with our portfolio company called Loyal, which is working on pet longevity. So increasing the lifespan, uh, healthy lifespan of dogs. Um, they have made tremendous progress in terms of getting the FDA on board with this being an option. They got, uh, in essence, a protocol concurrence from them back in March. Um, really, really excited to see, in essence, what's going to play out with Loyal over the next couple of years uh, in terms of getting the, the first pet longevity drug approved. Um, and then kind of on the other end of the extreme, so that on that end of extreme, kind of this like low hanging fruit, but really ambitious on a regulatory perspective. On the other end of the extreme, we're super interested in uh, kind of similar to what Patrick was saying, uh, tissue engineering, very, very interested in kind of these next generation, second gen aging plays, gene therapy, tissue engineering, uh, organ replacement through xenotransplantation, cell therapy. Uh, reprogramming and kind of the ability of these to give us much bigger effect sizes. However, 
going to have to be a lot less extreme on the regulatory side, uh, go through established regulatory paths with more of these newer modalities. Uh, and, and one of the examples I'll say there is that there was data that was published about three weeks ago now from a company, eGenesis, that was spun out of George Church's lab, where they were able to grow, in essence, take pig organs, a pig heart, make over 50 genetic edits to it, implant it in a, a non-human primate and keep a primate alive for over two years using this pig heart. Um, and they'll, you know, in the next couple of years, be bringing that into, into humans, an absolutely mind-blowing technology where it's like one of those moments where the future is going to be very weird. Yeah. And of course, I guess the, what you're what you're both referring to there in relation to um, organ uh, maintenance or replacement, of course, is the um, the concept of keeping the uh, using Aubrey de Grey's analogy, you know, keeping the car on the road, but replacing the parts, but the car still continues to go, i.e., the concept of um, longevity, escape velocity, uh, or maybe even uh, immortality. And I did speak with uh, Eric Verdin um, uh, last week, who was quite quite uh, strong in his opinions about uh, other people in the space that are perhaps making the uh, investment category a little um, uh, less serious, shall we say, by talking at these levels about immortality and living forever. Uh, do, do you find that uh, with the people that you're speaking to, uh, any any on the panel, uh, that people kind of get past that quite quickly and know that this is genuine science? Or do you feel that there are some some risks associated with people not taking it seriously still? I would never use words like immortality or, or living forever, et cetera. Um, this belongs to religion or, or philosophy or other fields. Um, what we say at Kizu is keeping healthy people healthy. And uh, that people may live longer, maybe a lot longer, in the future is a side effect of that. But nobody who is healthy um, would accept, you know, uh, a decline, uh, pain, uh, dementia even, or cancer. So I would clearly stray away from from these terms and, and do you do you find that it's um I, I guess the question wasn't particularly clear i mean do you find that there's any negativity associated with that yes. in your interactions with people so yes it does come back at you right okay yeah yeah for, for investors exactly yeah yeah uh, alex elena are you got any, any comments on that at all yeah i think the notion of living forever and immortality is a little bit on the extreme side and it kind of like it just sounds a little bit too um if i may moon boy um so i think we kind of need to take one step at a time really and also just like kind of uh, help people take us uh, seriously in terms of the work that we're actually doing we're doing great work and also just kind of using this type of terminology isn't necessarily the best approach yeah yeah great well um we're, we're leaning into the kind of year, year end right so uh thanksgiving for for you alex next week which kind of gets you thinking about christmas and uh and the new year so so just asking around the panel just very quickly looking into 2024 what, what's uh what's what's exciting you about moving into the new year alex do you want to go first yeah, definitely. I, I think what's exciting me the most is this new venture creation we're working on, which I think really actually has a chance to get an aging drug approved in humans in the next 10 years. Uh, and I would have never at, like seen myself saying that. Uh, and so the fact that I've like flipped in a month from not saying that to saying that has gotten me super excited. So that that's one thing that I'm very excited about headed into next year. That's great. Uh, Eleanor, how about you? Um, I'm excited about basically um, 
using the IPNFT, IPT model more and basically just showing the world as to what this can do uh, from an alternative financing perspective. We recently spun out uh, our most recent company, Matrix Bio with Gorbanova. Um, we have um, others in the pipeline as well that um, are yeah yet to be brought out. So I'm excited to basically showcase, continue showcasing um, this great work. Great. And just to clarify, an IP NFT is that, as I understand it, the people that contribute to the IP, they mm -hmm. hold tokens in that IP. So therefore, it's not just one inventor effectively on the uh, uh, associated with the uh, with the discovery. Is that right? So there's the one inventor who's associated with this, with the discovery. They own the patent. The IP NFT is the on-chain um, equivalent of that, whereby you can basically raise crowdfunding by selling a portion of that IP NFT. I can also explain more to anybody who would like to uh, learn a bit more about that too uh, separately. Yeah, great. Well, well, we will share uh, information, and of course, so the smaller cap investors can 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 join you quite easily. Great. So, uh, so Patrick, um, uh, you're you're here to wrap us up. So, no pressure. What's what's going to be big for you next year? Well, three of our key startups should all, if everything goes well, enter the clinic, which will be a, a huge step then for maturity and acceptance. So, I'm really looking forward to that. Okay, wonderful. Well, uh, guys, thanks for jumping in early on the on the call, which means that we uh, luckily we can all uh, go and get a cup of tea six minutes earlier. So uh, thanks very much for, for you joining us today on the panel and obviously everybody that joined us from around the world uh, for this Master Investor Conference as part of Longevity Week London. So uh, thanks for all your time. Uh, Tim and the team will follow up with contact details. And again, yeah, thanks for joining us. It's been fun. This podcast was brought to you by Master Investor. For more investment and economics analysis, please visit masterinvestor.co.uk.